Hey everyone, this is my brother Michael. My brother Adam. We're the Sharp Brothers. You're listening to Mentoring for the Modern Musician. Welcome to Mentoring for oh, Modern I'm so Musician. excited about this so conversation. This <laughs> We're going to be discussing... We are going to talk to Scott McCormick, uh, blogger extraordinaire from Disc Makers. Among many, many other among things. Among many other things that he does. Um, but we're going to, the focus is going to be on Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson and uh, producing and arranging. And arranging. We're talking with Scott McCormick, blogger extraordinaire. That, that is what I've settled on because... <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start right up front and tell you that reading your blog posts is not like anything else. It does a couple of things. It makes me never want to write a blog post ever <laughs> because I'm like, well, it's not gonna be as good as Scott's. There's no way it could possibly be as good as Scott's blog post. It can't possibly be. It also makes me go, I don't need to go to Berkeley. I'm just gonna read, read Scott's, Scott's stuff. <laughs> See what Scott's got oh, to say. Oh boy! About it. No, wow. it, it it like really it's it's so. Oh my God! It's and well rich. written, and fun to read, Lush. and rich, and deep, and sourced. It feels like when we was, used to watch the news when we were kids, where wow. there was actual, real research going on, and people knew stuff. Right. It's great. I so, should probably hang up the phone right now. It's going to dispel all of that. So, so from the from the little background looking that I did from. Uh, before we talked, um, so we've been—I've been reading your blogs for a while. What I—what I've noticed is um, you have a very small digital footprint. I'm just going to jump in and say I think your digital footprint size is fine, <laughs> Scott. I think you've got it. Well, so what it's I wanted complex to, there, and the, <laughs> and the reason that I say that is because I'm sort of I'm would love for you to just give us a little bit more about your background. So I know that you were in a band in the '90s. I know that you've been um, with disc make were with disc makers for 20 years, but I'm not sure in what capacity. I'm assuming as a writer, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, so I kind of, so you guys um, interviewed Andre Callahan. Yeah, yes. Great guy. Um, I, I sort of, before the digital era, I was there, um, I sort of did the print newsletter, so I kind of did like the okay. print blog. Fantastic. Uh, and then I moved into other areas in marketing, and I eventually became the copywriter. So if you've ever gotten yep. a Dismaker's catalog. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That yeah, that was me. I wrote that for That's great, man. plus years. And, you know, I knew I recognized your writing from somewhere. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we were really interested to have you on the show, um, not just because you're a, a great blogger, a great writer, but also because you have this wealth of knowledge. Um, I'm assuming about production in general, but particularly you've done these pieces on the blog about Brian Wilson. Where do you place him amongst? producers in history for his importance um well you know he's usually considered at least in the 60s as one of the most influential producers along with like george martin and phil Spector. absolutely uh, uh for me i think in the production stuff is interesting but i think where he gets really what makes him so special is his arrangements yeah more than because so, he used a lot of like the same um, recording techniques as Bill Spector with the wall sound and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And um, but I think where he really stands out is how he arranged songs and used instruments and and didn't use instruments. Um, he tends to 
mix a lot of unusual instruments together yeah. to create new sounds. And so it's often kind of unclear what instruments you're hearing. Right. But in terms of like the clarity, he, he got like that nice combination of a big sound, but also the clarity that the Motown records got. Absolutely. And, uh, um, you, you know, in the, in the, uh, the disc makers piece, you included a, um, a 13 minute video sort of behind the scenes video, uh, during the recording of pet sounds. And, one of the things that struck me from that uh, that video was that it looked like a very similar setup to the way Phil Spector recorded, where all the musicians are in the same room. Um, and I'm just curious if you have any insight into how they were able to get the separation then, even though there had to be bleed. There had to be bleed, but I think he was a little more careful in uh, the instruments that he chose and how he matched them up. Um, so one of the things I talked about in the article was like his use of drums Right. So he, you know, a lot of, so if you compare like Beach Boys use of drums to the Beatles use of drums, Ringo is like constantly smashing away at the cymbals, especially in those early songs. Yes. Um, and it's like, it's, it's great because it's like very punk and it's driving the song forward. <laughs> but the Beach Boys don't do that at all. In fact, the only time you'll hear a cymbal on most of the records is as a, you know, a splash to like add some color or, you know, for transition or something. But usually, the symbols aren't there at all. It's, he'll rely on a piano for the to drive the song as opposed to the drums. Right. Um, and I think it's just because he didn't want that to interfere with the high harmonies that the band was singing. Yeah. Well, that's a fascinating. I'm trying to imagine producing and removing all symbols. Uh, yeah. Right. And because right. it's, it's it's such a trick, right? You like crash on the one, and we're into the chorus, and we're into the you know what right. I mean. So, do, or like the the snare hit on the two crash, the the sort of Fleetwood Mac thing, and and uh, it's fascinating because I hadn't thought about that until I read that in your article as well, and and then going back and re-listening to all the Beach Boys stuff, I know I'm like, wow, you're right. It's not. It's absolutely not there. D- and d- you don't miss it. No, uh, no. It's very easy to, yeah, it's very easy to not, not realize it's not there. Yeah, it doesn't feel like anything's missing at all. Right, right. R- right, you definitely don't listen to a, uh, to a Beach Boys production and go, you know what I wish there was more of? Is whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fill in no. the blank. Anything. <laughs> well, the other thing that you, that you point out in the, in the piece uh, about that, about the drums, is that very often uh, what will be substituted for cymbal crashes, and, and sometimes not for drums, is just a tambourine. Right. Like that that's what's driving the song. And that again, the the video that you linked uh, in the piece, <laughs> when it says that, so the drummer was taken off of the kit in favor of a tambourine. Now they still playing in the studio right. and you're like, Hal, you're not going to play drums today. You're going right. to be doing tambourine. Right. Hal Blaine, one of the best uh, session drummer players, <laughs> drummers ever. Right. You're not going to actually play drums. You play tambourine, right? It, it right. just, it, so now there's still timpani in it, so there is still some of that, uh, you know, sonically. But it, it's something that I would not have noticed until until you pointed it out in the in the piece. Yeah, and I, I find that's true of a lot of music. When you hear songs so often, you kind of stop hearing them, and you just sort of have like a almost like a cartoon version in your head of what's happening. And then if you like go back and actually actively listen to it it can often be surprising what's going on in some of these tunes. That's funny. That's an exercise I do uh, with myself where I, I listen to what I call pre-musician music. So music that I remember from prior to me learning how to play instruments at like 10 or 11. You go back to the stuff you loved as a kid 
and re-listen to it with a producer's ear, and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. That's crazy. Why is the tambourine so loud and all this stuff? I never even noticed it was there. Yeah. I was listening to um, Little Honda uh, the other day, mm-hmm. early uh, Beach Boys. Yeah. Uh, it's one of their more, like, rockin' tunes. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a ton of instruments. I mean, there's a bunch of guitars and piano and, and uh, uh, the Hammond keyboard. But really, what's providing a lot of the uh, rhythmic background is just the, the band humming. Oh, my God. Just a big hum. <laughs> and it's like, you don't even realize what it is that you're hearing. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, that, it's very weird. That's phenomenal. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, we're probably going to jump around a little bit in this because I, I, one of the things that you mentioned uh, when you brought up Ringo, it brought me back to the, the, the part in, in the piece where you talk about, uh, you know, uh, Brian's use of, of bass and um, reminded me um, that he was a bass player in the band when they when he was still playing out with them and so he was the the one who uh, you know so he didn't play the bass it was mostly Carol Kay who you perfect say the great Carol Kay um, right. as the but he composed them all and I, I had never it had never occurred to me and I had never read the Paul McCartney was so influenced by the bass on Pet Sounds, but then I had to to you know we, so we had to go and listen to A B M. So the tune you you specifically mentioned is uh, the the baseline on here today, mm-hmm. and then we were going all right. So let's just go. It's going to go to Sergeant, Sergeant Pepper, and when when um, a little help from my friends comes in, you're like. Oh my God! That baseline never exists without without the line from here today. And I had never, never I know all those songs, and they're part of my mental repertoire Absolutely. of of listening to often. It never occurred to me to I'd, I'd never heard them. Certainly not back to back that way, um, but just fascinating. Again, one of the things that's that I love about your your. Um, blog articles is that is all the where you have all the links to go. All right, so cool and and listen here and you do the thing that I love, which is great for my little my little short attention span, which is between one forty five and two o three. Listen to the cool walking bass. I love that. Man. Yeah, that's just leads me right where I need to be. I love that. No, absolutely. I, I love how in touch all those guys were with each other at the time. You know, they were all yeah. to each other's records and they're all trying to learn from and outdo each other. And it just really led to a very vibrant era. Yeah. I mean, almost uh rap battle like. Right, right. Right. Like, like, like the, lots of the hip hop cats are all trying to outdo each other. And, and it was sort of the same thing just with a different accent or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I love that. It's actually I hadn't I hadn't thought about that, but that that is a really that does still take place. It just isn't. It doesn't feel quite as um, contained. So it's from genre to genre. So we know that urban guys will, uh, will and women will listen to each other and and be influenced by each other. I know it was true of the sounds in Seattle in the nineties, mm-hmm. you know, but this is true. This was these guys were all sort of really doing that and it was it was a uh, across the board well even from where you start where how influenced brian was by phil Spector, right but also the timeline was so compressed back then these guys right. were under such enormous pressure to crank out album after album after album 
Whereas like today, you know, if a band puts out an album every two years, they're doing pretty good. Right. Um, right. You know, the Beatles put out like five albums in two years. Right. And, it, and it's something that they were better. It's just that like that was the industry. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's nice <laughs> that you that you wrote yesterday, but that was yesterday. And now we need a new. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got, Paul? <laughs> right. There's actually a, a line from Ray Davies when he was he had like a nervous breakdown. And his producer was hounding him for more music. He's like, dude, I just wrote Waterloo Sunset. Like, what more do you want from me? You know? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> right. He wanted the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like, that's cool. Waterloo Sunset. What else you got, right. Ray? Right. We're going to need more from you. I remember reading that, <laughs> that Leo Kotke had, you know, the, did, did like 25 records in a 10-year period because his contract was he had to put out a record every six months. Oh, wow. And, I, and, he, was, and he was touring. He was doing, he was like doing 200 plus dates a year and putting out a record every six months. I'm like, I don't even, how do you do that? Yeah. When do you have time to eat? Well, I wonder, so this isn't in any of your pieces, at least that I found, but I'm curious. And I think a lot of people don't, I think a lot of people who aren't music aficionados don't know that, uh, that Brian didn't tour with the Beach Boys. Initially he did, but then it, it, he, he realized it was going to be taking away too much of his time. So he went into the studio. Well, I love that taking away too much of his time. I, I sort of wonder now, just having jump off the, the part of the conversation we were just having, I wonder if any of that was, was influenced by this pressure to put out new music so constantly. Right. And it, cause he wasn't just producing Beach Boys records. He was right. also producing other uh, lesser known, but you know, groups like the Honeys and, and things like that. So he was like, he became... Uh, quickly uh, the studio producer so yeah he had a sample which is very cool yeah uh, well absolutely yeah. especially because he was like 22 years old you know which is kind of which, insane yeah it, it's sort of that's that buddy holly thing right. where you go right wait he had an 18 month career <laughs> right and i still count him as like one of my biggest influences when he would he yeah. died ever you know before i was born or what yeah it, it, it you're right it was a different a different industry which actually, and I know Michael said we're going to jump around. I do want to say this just so I don't forget, because I would really love your your sort of take on this. We were thinking as we were listening to sound clips um, uh, this morning about uh, getting ready for the interview that it sounds like Brian Wilson would have loved Pro Tools, man. Oh yeah. Do Do you think that? Do you think so? Yeah, no, I don't know much about his um, later career, you know, now that yeah. he's still recording. Right. Cool. Um, and so, I'm, you know, he's using Pro Tools and whatever. And uh, I, I think it's, he probably enjoys it very much, although, you know, being in his 70s, I don't know that he has the, the drive that he used to have. Yeah, well, no, sure. And it's sort of a, fake, a fictitious question that has no answer. It's kind of like I think Mozart would have loved Pro Tools because... He wouldn't have had to deal with people, and it would, he would have just been able to do it himself. But, well, but one thing I find is, like, if you have too much available to you, it can kind of you can get this sort of analysis paralysis. Yes, where, like, you're just sort of mm. so overwhelmed with the um, unlimited possibilities that it can be kind of hard to know where to start or right. where to stop. No, you're you're totally right. But I I wonder, like, because if he was, you know, taking snippets for good vibrations and smush them together. I wonder if that would have been helpful for a 22-year-old Brian Wilson to go, all right, everybody leave me alone. I'm just going <laughs> to stack this. And that riff would be cool if I doubled it in harpsichord. There you go. I just doubled it in harpsichord without, without ever having to, do you know what I mean? 
It, like, I wonder if that kind of, I mean, no, there's no answer for this. It's, well, I think there are a couple of answers. Um, one, given his personality, it probably would have been really dangerous for him to have yeah, right. uh, our tools. I think he needed people saying, okay, dude, you're way past your deadline. You gotta <laughs> stop. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then the other one is, I was actually trying to think of, like, how can Brian Wilson's arrangements help an independent musician who doesn't have the yes. uh, resources that he has? And you know, he would often use instruments in really unconventional ways. And that's not something you can get from a sample or, you know, right. or a setting on your computer. He would have to find a way to record, you know, so like um, the cellos on uh, Good Vibrations are used as a as a, a rhythm instrument. You get to dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. Right. And that's that you can't get. I don't think you can get that from a sample. I mean, maybe now you can. Maybe there's the Good Vibrations cello setting. You can't. It's what's actually it's. It's pretty crazy. I have to make yeah. myself leave the studio now. It's just yeah. It's it, <laughs> the kinds of things that you can get cellos to do. The fact that uh, I can yeah. have that I can have Omar Hakim play on a track just by <laughs> dragging that particular Omar Hakim sample in, and then go. You know what though? I wish he did this fill here. All right, now he did. You know what? I wish he did that fill in uh, halftime. Oh, you yeah. know what he did. But I think you're right. The possibilities can be can be daunting. But but in in terms of thinking about how to help younger musicians be more adventurous and creative and inspirational like Brian Wilson was like uh, taking his production brilliance and his techniques and his, his adventure, adventure, sumness, his set, his, his, his thrill, his, his adventurous nature and using it in a, in a digital realm. If you're by yourself in your room on a laptop, I, you know, so like he worked on, Smile for over a year and didn't complete it. Um, if he had had Pro Tools, I mean, I, I don't know that he ever would have emerged from. The studio, <laughs> probably, you probably. Know, but when he went up, there. but when he went up to his room for ten years, he would have at least had Pro Tools. He could have <laughs> dragging some samples around, and <laughs> I would. It's kind of crazy, you know, when you think like Sergeant Pepper was recorded on a four track. I know that just blows my mind. It's it, it really it is, is crazy. It is absolutely, and I think you're right. I think the thing that that is missing in a lot of that is um, the the other human interaction, having right. other people to bounce your ideas off of. Is someone to say no? Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. So <laughs> Michael will often say to me when I try something, you know, that's a, that's a good idea, just not for this. Right. You know. <laughs> That's cool. Not here, though. It's kind of always good to have somebody that's able to do that. You know, I um, I did want to f- just follow up on, on what you just said about how a younger uh, producer might be able to use um, Brian Wilson as, as an example. And I sort of want to parse it a little bit more because one of the things that I really like about what you've done on this blog post is that you've started with um, Brian Wilson, the songwriter, then also Brian Wilson, the studio genius. So, and you've split the studio part up into these two different, what were way more defined roles early on in recorded music that really aren't anymore. The difference between an arranger and a producer. Hmm. Right. And so I think it kind of goes back to like the Sinatra era. Absolutely. You know, so you have a guy like Cole Porter, right? You know, night and day or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's probably just a piece of sheet music that he, you know, written for piano. Right. And so if Sinatra wants to record it, 
he's going to take it to a guy like Nelson Riddle and say, okay, you know, turn this into a hit for me, right? And so right. Nelson Riddle will take those chords and those melodies and he will arrange it for an orchestra with horns and right. strings and drums and all that. Something stuff. specifically for Frank. Right. Right. And, and then they'd go into the studio and that's when the producers would take over and make sure that it all sounded good. Um, right. But with the rock era, the, you know, the bands were often writing their own stuff and they didn't have a ton of instruments to work with. You know, you'd have four guys in a band and so you'd use all of them on every single track. Right. Right. So, so that's really where um, Phil Spector first and a guy like Jack Nietzsche, Nietzsche I guess, um, and then like Brian Wilson, you know, they really sort of um, did something that was very different from what everybody else was doing. You know, they would, they had the resources and they had the, the uh, vision, I guess, to sort of take a song and then figure out a way to arrange it for horns and strings and, you know, right. uh, percussion instruments. Um, so that was something that, like, say, the Beatles didn't really do, you know. They, they might add a piano or maybe a sitar or something, but it wasn't a totally different step necessarily. Well, and yeah, and I mean, George Martin did all the string arranging and, and, and stuff, but he was not really a member of the band. I mean, right. you know, in theory he was. He was more like their, you know, Bing Crosby had skitch. And, and, <laughs> right. Right, and, and George Martin was like their skitch, I guess. <laughs> Cooler, probably cool. All those sketches, pretty cool. Yeah. So it's a, it's a different. It sort of, it is one of the pieces that gets forgotten about, uh, a little bit about arranging a song, and e- even when you're not including, you know, fifteen different instruments, it's still important to make the arrangement decisions. That you know, are we going to do a double chorus on the right. end? Is there going to be that hard stop? on good vibrations so that you can get to the the cathartic ah right before you do that last chorus right and and i think you know it, it should all be in service to the song and to the uh the emotion that you want to uh, portray or go after in perfect song, you know so absolutely um, you know it's nice with pro tools to, to know that you can put 150 different instruments on a song but if it's an intimate little love song, that may not be the right answer. Absolutely. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> right. One of the uh, songs that I played in that article is a song called Little Pad from yeah. um, Smiley Smile. It's one of my favorite Beach Boys songs. And it's it's similar to Good Vibrations in that it's also a pastiche, but it's very different. I mean, it's just super stripped down. Oftentimes, it's just a ukulele. And right. It's very quiet, peaceful, little, um, wistful song. And that wouldn't have worked with the arrangement of Good Vibrations. Right, right, exactly. No, for sure, right. What's, what's, what's so important about Good Vibrations is the big builds and drops, and, the, and when, they, when you get, do get to that cathartic stop, hard stop on the ah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah that, that, that's just perfect. And Which you described brilliantly, by the oh way. God. Yeah, well, <laughs> so right? we've, we've had the advantage of, of reading the rough for the next blog post that's coming out, and... And very excited. I just where you started and where you ended. It's it's just perfect. It's it's exactly that was what how I always felt about that song. You described it ex- perfectly. Now I didn't. It's cool how how he took it and expanded on it for the whole album. Like I, you know, it wasn't until I listened to the album right. several times that I realized that the album kind of goes through the same journey that that one song goes through, which is amazing. And now, do you yeah. think that that was purposeful? 
Your opinion. Uh, it's hard to say. Be- well, yeah, it's hard to say because I think there was even a period of time when he wasn't going to include good vibrations on the album. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until 2004 that anybody even really knew where that song was going to be on the album. You know, there's this whole period of time when the bootlegs came out right. and people were like trying to piece it together. Like, where does this song, you know, most bootlegs that I heard ended smile with the song, uh, surfs up. But when you yeah. hear it the way that it is, it's hard to imagine it having, you know, been positioned anywhere else. Like how could you <laughs> not have it there and on the album, you know? So, so I not think be- it had to be intentional. Maybe it was like subconsciously intentional. Right. Yeah. Maybe just submerged so far. Well, because you said that he had originally thought about having that album actually on Pet Sounds. Right. Yeah. Which and it wouldn't. I mean, it would be nice, but it wouldn't work. It doesn't. You know, Pet Sounds is so beautifully contained the way that right. it is, and it has a different like harmonic palette that Smile has. Right. Yes. From Good Vibrations. Yeah. Which I love that your description of that is is again that's one of the things where I was like, okay, I'm gonna turn my brain up. To get the theory that's being laid down on, on on this blog post, so that I can actually put the math behind why I like what I'm listening to. Any any time that there is theory being discussed in an article, and I want to read the paragraph two or three times, this is a good article. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny because until I was doing this article, I, I'm not aware of another band that like changed their harmonic you know, change the kinds of chords that they use so yeah. dramatically from one album to the next. Yeah. That was a fascinating uh, piece that you talked about. Do you, do you mind expanding on that a little bit? Well, so in on Pet Sounds, he uses a lot of, um, like, real jazz chords, like ninths, and um, these things called uh, half-diminished chords, which are pretty arcane chords in rock, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of that is on Smile. Uh, on Smile, he gets a lot of like slash chords and these like pseudo eleventh chords, and none of that is on or the slash chords on on Pet Sounds, but these like big eleventh chords like that ah and good vibrations. Right, it doesn't exist anywhere in Pet Sounds, and so it's you know there's, there's still diminished chords and there's still major and minor chords, of course, but these like big chords, um, it, I think like a half diminished chord is almost like kind of the identity of Pet Sounds. It kind of really makes Pet Sounds sound like Pet Sounds and. And uh, it's that 11th chord that really makes smile sound like smile. Yeah, and you're exactly. I'm 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 listening in my head and going, those yeah, those are two definitively different sounding records, and they match up with that chord. Yeah, and it's weird because he was recording good vibrations as he was working on on pet sounds, so it's crazy that he could like yeah, do yeah. both at the same time. And... Well, so you sort of wonder, and there. Uh, if he realized what you had just said, which is okay, so this this doesn't fit for this album, but I love this is a great song. I'm going to do an album that where it does fit. And, and yeah, I'm not sure how much of that was conscious. Yeah, and and you know a lot of it also had to do with studio pressure. It was, Pet Sounds was not a hit, and right. so they needed a hit song, and so he had been, already been working on Good Vibrations, and they released that as a single. I was, and so. <laughs> You know, it, it, it was very easy for him to have not included it on Smile since it had just been released. Which is which is actually great. I'm really glad you you said that because I would um, not being a Beach, a Beach Boys aficionado the way you are. I was like, well, what do you mean that Smile wasn't released? Because Good Vibrations, like I, that's a part of my youth, man. That I know that song. That's, right, right, right. So it was released as a single. That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
It was, and it was a, like a desperate single because, you know, I think they may have put out a greatest hits album after Pet Sounds didn't hit, or that might have been the previous one. I can't remember now, but right. yeah, they were they were constantly like I said, all these guys were under so much pressure, mm, and right. um, Pet Sounds flopped in America. It was a big hit in England, but of course, in America, it, it was their. I think it might have been their worst uh, album in terms of record sales. Their worst selling album. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about their earlier stuff, that does, that's not super surprising. I mean, you know, they were pretty mainstream, you know, girls and cars and surfing and right. pop songs, man, you know? And, you know, the band was very much aware of this, too. You know, like these guys were out on tour right. um, when he was recording Pet Sounds and they came back. <laughs> and they were like, uh, dude, I think you're straying too far from the formula here, you know? <laughs> You're like, what is this and where, how am I possibly going to sing over it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I love that you include the, some of the, just the music, the music beds, uh, that they must've come, come back and listened to in the studio and gone, <laughs> right. Brian, what is happening to you? What's going on? Oh, another- if, if you're at all interested in smile, um, in 2011, the label put out a thing called the smile sessions and, um, there's some, a bunch of added tracks, and uh, one of them is a collection of the background vocals that the Beach Boys sang for Smile, yeah. and it's it's brilliant to listen to, but you can also kind of get a sense for like them being a little concerned for Ryan's sanity, because some of the, you know, the noises that they were asked to sing, and probably sing several times, are just flat out weird and it's like dude how is this how is this gonna play on the radio yeah well, well and when you start looking at it in in a historical context you absolutely go oh yeah this is towards the end of brian's uh productivity era right yeah. where where he was gonna just go you know take off and and uh disappear for a while Partially, I think, because of the, it being defeated, you know, trying to, this big, massive thing and then just being unable to complete it. Well, and how old would he have been at that point? I think he was born in 42, so, uh, so this is 66, 67, so he would have been... Uh, 25. 25, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. So really yeah. just, just actually... Man. Just actually his brain starting to fully develop at that point. Right. His yeah, brain was done yeah. cooking and, and he was done <laughs> with the great creativity that was, wow, that's, and it's, yes and no, like he does have some uh, wonderful songs uh, as late as like 71, mm-hmm. but, um, but the fire really kind of had gone out of him. So he, yeah. he wasn't taking that leadership role anymore that the other guys stepped up and wrote songs too. And so okay. it wasn't, it wasn't the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I've had a lot of long discussions with people about that, about the, uh, you know, the the nature of rock and roll and it being sort of a young person's venture and not that you're done once you're 25 or 26 or 27 or 30, but that there is something about that. I have no responsibilities. I am just going to do all my creative work now and, and, and the, you get some brilliant stuff done because you're trying to prove something. And once yeah, it's, it's hard on a, what. Sorry to interrupt you, but no, like as hard as it must have been for these guys to be under all this pressure, you know, we are the beneficiaries of that. You know, Absolutely, they were just constantly getting pushed. And I think, like after a while, the pressure sort of stopped because they were so successful or whatever. Maybe the music had moved on to things, and so like I feel like once the pressure stopped, 
the greatness also kind of stopped. Well, yeah. and in other fields as well, it's it's not uncommon for someone who's a mathematician to come up with the their brilliant, you know, formula when they're in grad school and they're in their early twenties, and then that's it. They spend the rest of their life lecturing and writing on that thing they came up with in their twenties. Yeah, I mean, Einstein's a nice example of that. I mean, he came up with the theory of relativity at like 1905, and then kind of, you know, that's yeah. pretty much it. I mean, I mean this, <laughs> still Einstein, but you know, well, he's yeah, still but, Einstein. No, but he, was, exactly. he wasn't putting out the hits anymore. I mean, he had some good things <laughs> right. to say, but you know, that's right. He still did some nice work. The theory but it of relativity is cool. What do you got now, though, Einstein? For me, he's, exactly. he still did some nice work, but none of it was Stairway to Heaven. So that's I just, right. you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fast. So, so there is that that interesting thing. Now, on the other side of that, you know, being far on the other side of twenty seven, there's some really cool stuff that happens, and you get to relook at it and learn things and read cool blog articles. And yeah, talk about theory, and it's kind of fun. But 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 there is an expectation that Brian Wilson's going to continue to be Brian Wilson forever, and I don't even know if that's a fair comparison or, yeah, or a fair it's expectation. It's a little bit of an unusual story, too, because of, of how it you know, came crashing down in the 60s. Um, but, you know, you take a guy like Paul McCartney, um, and, you know, he did some good stuff in the 70s and, you know, less so in the 80s. And right. this is the occasional nice Paul McCartney song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also no pressure on Paul. Right. right. He doesn't have to prove himself. Right. Well, no. and, and, and like he says, you know, I might not be writing yesterday anymore, but I, I did write yesterday. <laughs> exactly. So. I wrote yesterday in Blackbird, so shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. I'm not sure that's exactly <laughs> right. what he said, but it was something like that. No, he followed it by saying, go veggie. That's, what, that's right. pretty much what he followed Go it veggie. This is my song, which <laughs> exactly. is amazing. But, uh, have you guys heard his collaborations with Elvis Costello? Absolutely. Love it. Yeah. Flowers in the Dirt is one of my favorite Paul McCartney albums after the 70s. Yeah, and, and there's like a bunch of unreleased stuff that yeah. they did together. Well, it's and all amazing. Ver- it's incredible, and Veronica. Veronica is one of my favorite Elvis Costello right. songs. So, yeah, which, which doesn't like happen. That was a guy. I, I feel like he finally had someone who said no to him. You know, yes, yes. a little bit of a, a pushback. And I think <laughs> he needed that. That's yeah. And you know what? I think you bring up a really good point, and this is a good one. I just want to want to highlight for for artists listening to you know how do I take all this brilliant information from all these amazing right. people and do something with it. You know what? F- find people around you that will still say no. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how successful you are, make sure that there's somebody who in a loving way can say to you, no, nah, I don't think so, man. Yeah. That's not, nah, yeah, I guess, or maybe like Michael says to me, you know, it's a good idea, it's not for this. <laughs> do something else. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I was in a band and we were nowhere near as successful as anybody, but... Um, Bunny Plasm. We yeah, money plasma, right? Yeah, which so, we um, actually we actually listen to, really like. I was lot. on. Your, I don't know if you know this now, but I was on your MySpace earlier today. <laughs> yeah, because the MySpace is still out there. It's I didn't some, even know we had a MySpace. There you some, go. Actually, some really cool, this is some stuff. really great stuff. I actually really like the first release off of your 1999 record. Oh, I really enjoyed that song. Agreed. Well, you're thank the, you. You're you the guitar player on that stuff, right? I am one of the guitar players. Lead guitar I, I rhythm. Be, Rhythm, yeah. Okay, yeah. For me. Dig it. Good stuff, man. Yeah, we were sloppy and had a lot of fun. Uh, which is what we love about it. <laughs> yeah, right. It, and, um, you know, the, we would often disagree with each other about, you know, I would say, well, let's do it this way. And my other guitarist would say, no, I don't like that. How about this? And we would usually come to a third conclusion that was totally different. Mm-hmm. It was always better than, right. you know, where we started. And so... 
And right. that's, um, I think you're right. I think yeah, just that pushback. Great collaboration that way can can help you uh, reach a, a a better a better result. Yeah, I've always felt that that great collaboration means that you don't compromise. You keep going until you find the thing that's better than what either of you thought. When you're both happy. That's well said. Yeah. Now, I think there is a place where you can go too far. Sure. And I remember a producer telling us this, one of the first producers we worked with, he's like, you know, you want to be careful about having too many inputs uh, when we're trying to figure out what direction you're going in. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, just remember that a lifeboat built by committee is an aircraft carrier. (laughs) <laughs> which I just thought was an interesting way to put it, which is when, they, when we have too many different people coming up with too many different ideas, we just need a lifeboat. We need to get to shore. Yeah, and a bathroom. Yeah, and a place to land a plane. And <laughs> wait, hold up. <laughs> well, it's um, interesting. As a children's book author, I yeah. quickly discovered that a really good approach, so if people would often come up and say, hey, you should do this, you should do right, that. Right, of course. And, and it... At first, I was like a little defensive, and I would think to myself, oh, that's silly. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. But then I started to actually try some of these things that people suggested, and they didn't always work, but they would always lead me someplace new. And right. so one of the yeah. things I always tell uh, aspiring writers is to take all the advice that you're given by everybody and at least run it up the flagpole. Like, take it, it, no matter how crazy it sounds, no matter how much you're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, just take it and run with it because it's going to take you somewhere right? and give it a shot and see where it goes yeah i'm so i do want to mention that you also have this um a website uh called storybook editing where uh, where you you uh, um are available to work with for a bunch of different things for um other artists i mean you know other other writers which i just thought it was really really this is really cool this is one of the things i love about the internet that you can so you offer developmental editing. You offer um, copy editing and proofreading. There's, you know, you know, you've got just you can do. I love this. You've got this query letter for help, which is amazing. I just think that that's so. Anyway, this is a great for any writers out there, people who who are doubling as writers too. So, Michael, where would I find that? Check power, out storybook editing. <laughs> Check out storybookediting.com. And because not, not only are the services really cool, but but the prices are all right here, right up front, which we dig because we do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and they're all incredibly reasonable. I was like, oh my God. I, I'm, yeah, that's great. So I may start writing made, again. Made me wish I were writing a book. I actually you know, so. I actually have a couple of different things I'm writing. So I am gonna you quick, may be hearing from me about that. I'm going to quickly jump on the thing you said too about listening to everybody and then running up the flagpole. I love that. And what's funny is that is very similar to something that I've been saying to artists and, and students for years, which is listen to everybody and don't listen to anybody, including me. Yeah. In other words, like take all that advice and try it on and feel it and then go yes or no. Right. But none of it's gospel. But I I love it because it's a great, it's a, I love thinking or hearing that you think about things that way because it makes me feel better. Absolutely. Because I I love what you do. I love your writing and and the idea that you're always looking for input and just trying it on, just see what it does. I think that's a way. Maybe that's the kind of thing that um, unique artists that continue to be relevant and creative on into their careers, maybe that's how they're thinking. Yeah, I think so. You know? Yeah. 
So I, I um I know we've kept you for a little while, but I, I do if we could just briefly even um I feel like we we talked a lot about Brian Wilson as a as an, an arranger. If you uh, I know that I don't want to jump on the on the new blog post that's coming out soon about him as a producer, but I do want to just sort of get you to to just chat a little bit about what his uniqueness as a producer also. I mean, it'll be and it will be stuff that we've talked about a little bit already. But if there's anything that you would just go, okay, so here's my elevator pitch <laughs> about Brian Wilson as a producer. Uh, you mean like, like the way that uh, Phil Spector was a producer? Yeah, yeah, actually yeah. producing. Yeah. Um, honestly, I I feel like his role, and I could be wrong about this, but I feel like his. I don't know that he's as unique a producer um, as he is an arranger. You know, like I don't think he used the room terribly differently from the other guys, like especially uh, Phil Spector. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe he did, but maybe I'm just not well versed enough in the production aspect to really know. It's it's really more what I focused on more is is the arranging and the songwriting um, aspects. So you know how he used the studio. It's a little bit of a mystery to me because uh, you know they it's an old kind of studio. You know they had this like echo chambers and things right. like that. So. Yeah. <laughs> So he would be able to get that like big reverb sound the way that Phil Spector did. But I think it's really, I think a lot of the big sound he got was from the instruments he chose to use and how he would double up some instruments and leave other instruments totally out. And that sort of allowed there to be space to sing or just space to do nothing, you know? And it's so funny, that really is more closely aligned with arranging yeah. Than traditional production. Absolutely. Thing. One of the things that struck me when there was a, a one of those videos in links uh, the, that was linked to one of your articles. I can't remember which one had it's the arrangement one. Was that the, where he's? It's the 13 minute video uh, about him in the studio. I'll tell you one thing that he was not super talented at, and I've never said this about. I've never found something he wasn't very talented at: getting a good vocal performance out of somebody and making them feel good. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow. I would have just yeah. like sat. I would have been so sad and just gone and cried in my room. <laughs> I definitely would have said what the sing- what the other thing that the singer said was. Why don't you just do? You, it, you should just do it, Brian. You do, do it better than I do. Yeah. Your That's voice fine. is awesome. I'm so afraid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so different than the traditional way you think of like coaching a, a vocalist through a performance in the studio. We're like, no, that's good. It's really close. You know, let's try it again. All right, cool. We're getting there. It was more like, no, it's this. Do this. And super picky. I mean, yeah. he's hearing things that yeah. I can't hear. And I'll, I'll go back and listen. I'm like, Is there, what's wrong with that? I don't hear anything wrong with that. <laughs> right. I heard something. And but so I think Mike Love's nickname for him was Dog Whistle or something like that. Dog, dog Ears is what you, Dog Ears is what, that's in my notes from what you, one of the things that you pointed out in your in your piece. And I just thought that was brilliant because that's, well, and, well, and Mike Love was the one who pushed back eventually too, yeah. right? On, yeah. hey, dude, this is not cool anymore. Right. He was singing a, uh, this one lyric on Cabin Essence. Um, the, the line is, over and over, the crow cries, uncover the cornfield. And he's like, what does this mean? And Brian's like, dude, just sing it. And he's like, no, 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 what does this mean? I want to know what this means. And so they would call up uh, Van Dyke Parks and bring him in, and Mike was hounding him. What does this mean? What does this mean? <laughs> eventually Van Dyke's like, I don't know what it means, man. <laughs> I don't know. I just <laughs> made it up. It sounded cool. <laughs> And that's kind of like the moment where like everything started to fall apart, you know, like yeah. admitting that everything doesn't have to mean something, Mike, you know. 
Right. <laughs> Mike, do you understand it's the 60s and this is kind of psychedelic and just go with it. Just pretend you you're as stoned really... as you were on Little Pad when you sang it. That's right. <laughs> you want to uh, see a really cringe-worthy uh, video, go on YouTube and look up uh, Beach Boys, Willie Nelson, Warmth of the Sun. I don't know what year it's from. Okay. Maybe, maybe the 90s, but like somebody put together, like, hey, let's have... Uh, Willie Nelson sing with the Beach Boys, the, you know, the classic Warmth from the Sun. And on the one hand, it's really amazing that these guys could still hit the harmonies yeah. at their advanced age and it sounds great. But then Willie goes in to sing uh, his, you know, the, the verse, and Mike comes up to him and says, no, 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 man, that's, that's not how you do it. You're going to sing it like this. <sighs> and it's like, dude, you're talking to Willie Nelson. He's <laughs> 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 like, come on, dude. Wow. So, do you know why you asked Willie Nelson to do this? Right. To sound like Willie Nelson, hey, not Willie, to you, sound like I don't know, Mike could Love. You, could you play a guitar that doesn't have a hole in it like that, Willie? Let's just do a different. Play a steel string guitar over here. Exactly. Can nice somebody get Willie a Taylor. steel string guitar Give instead of the nylon string he's been toting around for? Throw him a Les Paul. Let's see. Let's see what happens. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, Scott, we have had the best time talking with you, and I hope we really hope that it's not the last time. We would really love. Oh, absolutely. To do this again at some point because I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much, yeah, man. I love really. It. Thank so, you, guys. Yeah. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. All right. You have a good one. Yeah, you too. Take it easy. Take right. care. Well, that was so much fun. Oh, my God. That, he really is. He just is so full. Encyclopedic. Yeah. And one of the guys where when I'm talking to him, I always want to start what I'm saying with the, well, this is anecdotal. Right. Exactly. This is what I've seen. I mean, I've studied well, this. And I've, I've studied, studied this a little for bit. For a long time. But, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time, but if, but if Scott thinks it's <laughs> something different, then I, I might want to go back and look. Yeah. Definitely. And, it's, and what's, what's great yeah. about that, again, for for your career to, to continually learn, is when somebody makes you feel like that, think about why. Right. Right? Exactly. Scott doesn't just randomly say stuff off the top of his head. Well, and what was interesting was when we when we asked him questions that he felt were, was out of his expertise, mm-hmm. he said that. Right. He said, well, you know, I'm not really sure, right. but I think it might be this. Which is a great way to approach your music career. It's so important. You don't have to know everything you all do- the time. You can't know everything right. all the time. Right. And so it's much more important to know what you know. And know what you don't know. Right. Because when you know what you know, then that's what you you know you have that strength to go from. Then you know, you know. <laughs> it's like when you know what you know. <laughs> you know. You, just, you know. You know, right? You know. You know. So that's you know what I mean. You know that sounds exactly. That's just like Scott. I should just write that down. Write that down. And that's there that's it is. Our blog post. That's our blog post. <laughs> you know, you know when you know what you know, you, you know. know, you know, you know. That's it. That is the name <laughs> of our blog, the Sharp Brothers. You know, Mentory for the Modern Musician. When you know what you know, you know what, what you, know. you know. You know, you know. That's it. <laughs> it's brilliant. Very, very valuable. Brilliant. I cannot recommend enough checking out Scott's Scott McCormick. His blog posts on, on disc makers. On disc makers. And there's a bunch of them. They're, 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 he, he's very prolific. He writes a lot. Well, we love, we love the disc makers blog anyway. Oh, yeah, and it, there's all kinds of information that's cool that you should go check out. But while you're there. When you do, though, make sure you've got you know a good cup of tea yeah. or a good cup of joe or a Red Bull. And or take the time to read the Whatever article. it is that you do right. to turn your brain up to 10. And, 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 right. And follow the links and listen and do the... the sort of little pieces of uh, explanation. It's one of the great things about um, the internet age. Absolutely. Is that it is like, 
I'm not. Michael's not kidding. It's like taking a course when you read one of these articles. Yeah, it really is. This, at least like sitting in on a really great lecture. You're not going to believe the kind of what you come away with, the information that you come away with. And that's the point: is that you're growing as an artist, as a creative, and finding cool, absolutely different pieces of information. I do want to quickly say because we keep forgetting to say this, um, for those who are listening on iTunes, um, make sure you subscribe. Absolutely. Subscribe to the podcast. To the podcast. Give us a review if you can. Give us a review. It would be awesome if you wanted to give us like five stars. Absolutely. And say how great we were. Yeah. That would be nice. Um, but so, so that you know what's, what's going on. And, when and, come, new... and come visit us on our, on our website, m3artists.com. m3artists.com. You'll also find it if you type in sharfbrothers.com. It'll bring yeah, you there. It will. Absolutely. Um, so just real quickly, just to, just to do a little wrap up of the production thing. Why is it important to you as a young producer? Or artist, even if you're not ever going to produce, to know about Brian Wilson and his production techniques. It's important because you can always pull inspiration for whatever you're doing into from the past into the into what you're doing. Look, like, you're Absolutely. a reggaeton artist, right? You can change the sound of that snare, yeah, right, and and double it with a merengue. You know, or a steel Snare. drum right, underneath right, right, it, right. right? And it's a whole different sound now. I think a meringue is a pie. It is a pie. Or it's a kind it, of no, dance. it's like <laughs> so a double it with a pie. It's a, it's it's a, a squishy sounding. So it, it'd be a squishy, which Spat. might not be a bad thing. Might not be bad. That could be that. You could double it with a timbale. You could exactly. You could double it with. I meant meringue beat. Is what what was happening? Meringue so, yeah, beat. Exactly. Reggaeton beat. But so why is it important? It's important for inspiration. Yeah. Right. And it's important to take chances. Yeah. And to remind yourself that you don't have to be stuck in a box of whatever style exactly. of music that you're doing. David Gray played acoustic guitar and added, you know, electronic drums, electronic drums and... to it for White Ladder and it and it made him a star. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Right. And there's all kinds of examples of that. And in pushing the envelope, there's nothing wrong with taking great ideas from the right. past. And just because, you know, Brian Wilson was doing all this stuff before we were born, mm-hmm. you know, so was Mozart. He and was using banjo on California pop songs. Right. That's amazing. Right. That's great. So don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone. Exactly. Try it. Maybe it, maybe it'll work. Maybe someone will say to you, I love that. Just not. Just not for, for this. this. But either, it doesn't matter. The point is, do the research. Get inspired. Try new things. Because remember, you got this. We got your back. 